you could feel the air come out of the room. And this fella who had sort of blurted this out, noticing how so many of his guys in his community found that to not be sort of the great idea that he thought it was in the moment and giving him a lot of like concerned looks, surprise, concerned looks. I didn't say anything. I just let it ride and sort of let this experience of realization, some embarrassment and shame probably, some might refer to as like healthy shame, come over this fellow. The awareness and the realization that was he was all of a sudden enveloped in by his peers' disapproval of this kind of like belief and response. Welcome back to the Gentleman Podcast, redefining manhood in the 21st century. I'm your host, Arjuna, and today I'm excited to introduce a special guest to the show, Dr. Aryan Mobasa. I've had the pleasure of actually meeting Aryan in person, and he's just as much a pleasure in person as I hope you'll find him on today's podcast. So just a brief rundown of Dr. Aryan's qualifications he is the coordinator of the Men's Resource Center at the University of Oregon, which is chiefly what we focus on today. Uh, but he's also co-founder of Circle Science, which is a consulting to integrate restorative and scientific practices into K-12 schools. And he's a dialogue facilitator with Conflict Artistry, LLC, which provides direct action community services with a restorative justice lens. So this guy's up to a lot. He has many years of ground level experience working directly with men. So I'm thrilled to be getting a window into that work. And I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. On today's show, Aryan is sharing from his own views and experiences and is not representing or speaking for any other organization. Enjoy it. I actually know Aryan from the University of Oregon. Remind me, what's your official job title? At the University of Oregon, uh, my job title is coordinator of what's called the Men's Resource Center, or MRC. And where there's a bunch of other divisions and organizational chart things that I could I could name, but that's that's the short version. That's really exciting to me because that's like right smack dab in the middle of the work that I'm exploring with this podcast, and so it was kind of a natural fit to invite you onto the show. So I'm I'm really excited to have you here and uh, your perspective. You've been working really on the ground level with a lot of the topics that come up on this show. The first thing that I wanted to ask you is simply, how did you come to that work? How did you end up either deciding, hey, this is a position I'm really excited about, or, you know, doing enough work that someone else was like, hey, you should get into this? Yeah, thanks. I'll say that when the position came up as being available, it was made for sort of the work and the, the, that I was already doing and the work that I had done and the momentum that I had already built around these topics. I actually came to the work of men's health and men's development in particular while I was a graduate student also at the UVO. So I was in a doctoral program in a developmental and social neuroscience lab, is actually also the name of it, and was working a lot on understanding adolescent well-being more broadly defined. And in the course of that, began doing a lot of sort of extracurriculars, mostly just to appease some of the tension that I was feeling around the gap between some of the basic science we were doing and the implications of that work 
on people's lived lives. Uh, I was just having actually a, a quite a tough time feeling a sense of personal satisfaction and traction um, and doing work that felt somewhat removed from real tangible things. And so I started working with uh, a bunch of different areas on campus, including what's called the Duck Nest, the Campus Wellness Center. I was one graduate student among a number of undergraduates who were working there as volunteers just to help support the center and help facilitate opportunities for uh, other students to, to get engaged with and participate in self-care and wellness sort of activities. And it was around this work and actually a project that I was doing. Uh, so part of that volunteer program was we, we would do, um, there was a class, uh, a course actually, that we took to sort of prepare us for the work that we would be doing as volunteers for the Duck Nest. And one of the projects that we did was one on health disparities. And for that project, I, I'm not even clear on how it came up or how I decided to choose and like advocate for my group to choose this topic, but I ended up focusing on the health disparity in, in a sort of backwards kind of way, the perpetration of sexualized violence. Focusing in on this conversation or the incidents uh, and this huge dis disparity in the perpetration of sexualized violence, based on the research that we do have, there was an absurdly imbalanced disparity in, in that incidence, such that men, by accounts, were responsible for 90% plus of perpetration of sexualized violence. And was just like really surprised as I began to explore a little bit more into that, that there wasn't a more prominent conversation about that disparity. And at the same time was connecting it with a bunch of other things that I felt like I was observing around this same gender disparity, around the perpetration of violence that was also not being talked about. So as an example, I remember it was actually the shootings in San Bernardino County, uh, the mass shootings that happened there. And I remember watching this newscast around this tragic unfolding event. And, you know, as they begin speculating about the perpetrators, the assailants, you know, one of the things that I noticed in myself is that I was really, especially at that time and in general, really interested to know whether the identity of the shooters happened to correspond with my own identities as a Middle Eastern American. At that time, and generally since 2011, been very aware of the association between you know Middle Eastern folks and Middle Eastern Americans and and violence and the perpetration of violence, both actual and perceived. And so I was really interested in knowing the sort of racial and ethnic identity of the shooters, and then somehow in the course of that realized that I hadn't even given a second thought to the gender identity of the shooters, and had sort of just taken for granted that of course it was a man. There were just these couple of related but independent observations that I was making about and uh, ways that I was learning about these gender disparities and the perpetration of both sexual violence and violence more generally that I was shocked to find that like more people weren't talking about or that I wasn't aware of those conversations anyway. And so that was, um, I think, a big motivation for me to continue asking questions and being curious about why those conversations are not happening. And what is it, what kinds of things are there getting in the way of those conversations and the potential beginnings of solutions to those issues? 
Yeah, so some of this work that I was doing from a more methodical perspective of like observing and, and researching some of these issues that I was becoming aware of was also happening at the same time that I personally was discovering or continuing to discover the ways in which my own development had affected a host of different sort of skills and abilities in my adulthood now that I was becoming aware of. So things around like, for example, my experience and expression of feelings of like anger. In my life, it didn't raise to the level where I was doing like really serious harm to other people. But as a kid, that reflex to react to big feelings with violence and as a middle school kid, like as in fighting, was something that was really present for me back then. And so that's just one of many aspects of my own development and my relationship to my own socialization that was very present for me around the same time. My experience of my childhood mirrors that as well. And it leads me to be curious about, or maybe even make an observation about how, like even at a young age, this socialization stuff is affecting us, right? And even at a young age, we are finding these diversions in behavior that come up. I think that that's a really interesting topic, actually. I think that's something that doesn't get talked about as much as it could, is how young and how early um, these kind of differences in behavior, socially encouraged differences in behavior showing up. You started talking about male violence and male sexual violence, and I appreciate that that is something that you honed in on when you were getting into this work, because I've been thinking a lot recently about how there are a lot of discussions about the differences between the sexes, which center on any number of things that can be very subjective and can be very difficult to nail down. But something that is not subjective and something that is very clear is that violence gap. And so it's such a clear place that men need to start. I feel like there is less ambiguity in the urgency around that conversation. One of the things I'm curious to hear you talk about is, so you work on a college campus. That's a place that, especially in recent years, uh, that's an environment that has come under scrutiny for male violence and male sexual violence. How does that come up in your work? And how does the organization that you work with within the university address that? So the group that I'm a part of, I referred earlier to sort of the organizational chart. The MRC or Men's Resource Center, Center technically falls under prevention services, which is an interesting and telling sort of positioning within the organizational structure and one that wasn't the case uh, a few years ago prior to my arriving. Previously, the Men's Resource Center, formerly the Men's Center, fell under the umbrella of identity-based student support services, so akin to the Multicultural Center or Black Cultural Center or the Women's Center. And then just in the past couple of years, there's been an awareness that the center can be both an identity-based like support system and also simultaneously get at some of these outcomes, these concerning outcomes, particularly related to substance misuse and abuse, but also sexualized violence on campus. And so, yeah, it's a huge part of our charter on campus to leverage the communities that we have and that we're building as a means of creating and like supporting healthier development of men themselves, but also addressing simultaneously the negative consequences of unhealthy development on the broader community, in particular in the form of sexualized violence. And so it's a huge part of what we do and what we talk about. One of the guiding principles in the work that we do, one of the taglines and the subtitle, for instance, that we have as part of our 
programming and our advertisement for for the month of November, which is also known as Movember for men's health. So it's Movember, and then the tagline is healthy men, healthy communities. And so really articulating the ways in which the work that we're doing is for men themselves and also simultaneously as a means of creating a stronger and healthier community that looks out for each other. I don't know if I answered your question specifically about sexualized violence, but... Yeah, well, you started to get into it. I'm curious about how are you messaging nonviolence to these young men? Or maybe that's not the right question, right? But what are some of the ways, kind of ground level, behavioral stuff, conversations, what are some of the ways that you're actually getting into that work? Well, one of the things I think that might be interesting and relevant um, for that question is that one of the core principles is that we don't speak to the work and certainly the practice of like engaging men into the work, maybe from the perspectives that, that we have, right? And this is one of the, the tensions that I run into in this work often is that there's a bunch of folks that I work with who do violence prevention work in particular, whose guiding principle is creating a safer community that's free of harm, that's free of sexualized violence against one another, which is absolutely aligned with the MRC's goal, but also not necessarily the guiding principle for a lot of the guys that we work with. And so a lot of what we do is position this work from a place that's like more personally relevant and more salient to the people who we aspire to engage, right? And so it's things, if I can use a tangible example, like when we work with fraternities, for instance, Absolutely, they're interested and committed in creating safer communities. I mean, there's not a fraternity charter that doesn't have very prominent in it a safe and healthy community as one of its values. And our guys are 19, 20-year-old guys who are in this like brand new cultural context in which socially, but like developmentally, connection, affiliation, status, these are the developmental needs in sort of developmental scientists speak that are driving their behavior. And so how can we, in addition to talking about healthy communities, talk about things like, okay, part of the purpose of having these conversations, talking about working through and practicing healthy communication, for instance, around like sexual health or consent. Part of why we're doing this is to help facilitate healthier, more frequent and better sex or to help facilitate parties that like people want to come to that feel safe um, and secure to come and hang out to. It's a little controversial. I think there's probably some people who hear that who probably feel bristled that we're, you know, that we're trying to like couch and like frame this like really important work of preventing sexual harm in terms of better parties, uh, which I totally understand and would be totally appropriate. And a lot of the work that we're doing is pointed at the same target, but trying to find ways that that work. Which I, I really appreciate that, you know, because it's like, I'm keenly aware that even this conversation that we're having right now might not be the exact conversation that is reaching the target audience that I might want to reach. I like that you're presencing that. Sometimes the work of actually meeting the people who need to be met looks different. The conversation you're having with them is clearly not the conversation that you're having with me. Yeah, I think that's an important point that sometimes gets missed a little bit because I, I think it can feel tempting to just grab someone by the shoulders and be like, don't do the bad stuff. But that, as we know, <laughs> from even like basic child psychology, that's not, you know, a lot of times it's just not the approach. So I really appreciate that you and your organization are taking what seems to me like a more pragmatic approach and a, an approach of, yeah, actually meeting people where they are and meeting them with their priorities. 
And I also, I like that it sounds like you're moving away from this narrative, which is often not just in this topic, but in a lot of aspects of life, and especially like younger people's lives. There's this kind of like, uh, I want to call it perhaps Christian, perhaps conservative idea about people shouldn't be having sex, or they shouldn't be partying, or they shouldn't be right doing all of these things. I think it's unhelpful to approach these projects from that mentality when clearly like when you're young and you're in college you want to go to parties you want to have fun you want to hook up you want to do all this stuff so i really appreciate that you're trying to create harm reduction proactively yeah absolutely and and broadening the conversation i think a lot of times a lot of the ways that this work has been done before as you're saying is like you should care about this, this is the motivation that should be central for you at the expense of all the other motivations that the young folks and young men in particular might actually be feeling. And so it immediately creates this dissonance and frankly this this real disconnect wherein like our young men a lot of times might be under the impression appropriately that like this person who's talking to me about this doesn't actually understand anything about like what who I am and what I'm about and what's important to me and what I'm trying to do. I'm finding in my work, we're finding that it's not a zero-sum game. It doesn't have to be one or the other. That we can hold and spotlight and center the whole of the experience, including both that young men or young people in general have these motivations to party and to connect and hook up and stuff, and can also hold simultaneously, have space to hold a motivation also to keep a safe and healthy community but to privilege the thing that we're most interested in at the expense of a conversation and really honoring and validating the other ones, I think only serves to alienate people from this work before they even get started. I love that. I think there are so many conversations that need to start with that understanding because I do, I feel like we're in this place of like, we need things that work, yeah. <laughs> right? It's a, it's a simple statement, right? But it's like, we actually need our approaches to, to work and to meet people. I mean, one, one of the phrases that, that comes up when I talk about this work, um, whether it be at conferences or workshops and stuff with other um, violence prevention folks, especially is like, you know, we got to think about is it is it more important to be right or to be effective? And those aren't sort of mutually exclusive things. They can happen concurrently. But, you know, as an example, less so because of this awareness. But even just the phrase toxic masculinity was very fashionable among people who do this kind of work. And I myself have used it. It was really it, it has been really important and valuable for me to, to identify sort of the brand and the quality and expressions, particular forms of expressions of masculinity that I think are contributing to some of the violence that we're talking about. That said, there are a great number of young men, and maybe especially those who might have at some point or do express at times some of those behaviors or are adjacent to them. And so let's say like folks in fraternities or in athletics who hear the term toxic masculinity and what they hear is that I'm toxic. My manhood and the way that I'm a man is toxic and problematic. That's, of course, not what I mean when I use the phrase toxic masculinity. I'm, I'm referring to a very narrow and particular like expression, but that is what they hear. And so I'm not wrong in using that term, but I'm also, if I'm using that term, I'm alienating, again, a bunch of the folks that I want most to like be engaged in this work. And so how can I shift my strategy uh, and in this case, by not using a specific phrase to keep from doing that. 
And a thread that I'm hearing throughout this as well, which I think is so important, is that the work that you're doing is generative. So what I see you doing is creating opportunity as opposed to restricting behavior. To me, that seems like a very basic behavioral psychology thing where you get a lot more results from moving towards a positive outcome that makes someone feel good as opposed to just telling someone like, don't do a thing. Your work is it's really centered on men. And I think that there's a lot of people doing this work who feel, why are we focusing on men? So can you speak a little bit to the value of that and the benefit that you see? So yeah, and just to clarify the question about why are we focusing on men, I think to extend that sort of question, why are we investing sort of even more resources and, and attention and energy into this population of folks who are wreaking havoc is that yeah and also like people who are privileged and whose needs are already censored by society and stuff like that yeah yeah i mean that's one of the if ever there was self-consciousness in this work that's what comes up first and foremost that curiosity or i'll take it further like that skepticism and one thing that i think about uh well i guess a couple things one is again think about impact the outcomes that we aspire to If it is the case that, you know, a lot of these behaviors that we're concerned about, this harm that's being perpetrated is perpetrated by men, then to me it makes almost perfect sense to focus on the issue at hand and to try to understand more about what combination of factors contribute to that being the case. It's a hard one to talk about. Um, And part of what I'm wanting to articulate is, is that difficulty of articulating you know, in the broader context of a, of a culture and a society that's been wrought with all sorts of social inequities, frankly, to the extent that, that men have been in positions of power and in positions of like decision making, a lot of these social inequities, it wouldn't be unfair to say, it would be totally reasonable to say that guys fucked up. Part of what's coming up for me is actually grounded in my worldview of like a more restorative justice lens, I think that what's more generative is that rather than focusing on blame and shame and this sort of zero-sum game or this dichotomy of like good guys and bad guys and deserving versus undeserving, I think there's, there's a lot more room for positive growth by holding everyone with a similar kind of care and dignity and deserving of the kinds of resources and support that'll help not only them, but ultimately, uh, insofar as we are all interconnected, will will help all of us. There is a poem that I also sometimes cite in my work by a Persian poet, a Sufi poet, Sadi, which is called Bani Adam. And it basically says that Bani Adam azoye yektigarand, which is that like the human race, human people are all parts of the same one body. Uh, and it goes on to say that if You know, if one part is hurting, the other parts are hurting. Also feel it and hurt. I think that's a big part of what we're experiencing right now, is that there are parts of our bodies, and in this case specifically men, that are hurting. And we're all hurting for it. My response would be just to change the frame a little bit and think about it more in those terms. Thanks for sharing that. I I would love to follow up on that poem. Oh, it sounds... so, so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, and thanks for yeah sharing um, part of your heritage yeah, as well. Thank you. 
I'd love to hear you talk about college attendance and higher education attendance by men. It's the topic of so much conversation. Why are higher education institutions predominantly attended by non-men? And what gaps exist there? And why do they exist? And what can we do about that? And I love that. I feel like you're someone who is uniquely positioned to at least start to talk about that, right? Because it's, I think it's such a large dynamic, it can probably be hard to really see it clearly. But I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Absolutely. Maybe just for folks who aren't really familiar with that disparity, I won't probably remember the exact estimates. But in the early 1970s, the spread, there was a huge gender disparity in college enrollment and matriculation such that men were overrepresented in institutions of higher education in the United States, almost to a 17 point or 18 point spread. And so thankfully, there was a lot of attention and awareness given to this disparity and a lot of policies and practices and programs that were developed to try to help support the proportion of women that were being enrolled and matriculated in colleges. And suffice to say, I mean, there's still a lot of work that remains to be done to help support not only women, but other minoritized folks in having access to systems of higher education. But in that sort of time period, what has ended up happening is that that disparity has almost in the span of this 40, 50 years has entirely reversed such that the gender disparity now is actually greater than it was in the 70s, but in the other direction. So yeah, as you put it, there's a lot of folks who are really interested in trying to understand why that's the case and what's contributing to that disparity. And I guess a lot of folks, I think myself included, who are also really interested in whether and to what extent we should care about that. Because there is some perspective, which is that like, well, that's, you know, as you mentioned, given the historical sort of disparities in privilege and power in the United States, that like, so what? It's fine. Balancing out former inequities. So yeah, so I end up asking in this work, or we end up asking uh, that question a lot and reflecting on that question a lot. And I guess, you know, how I talk about it a lot of times is, you know, it depends on what we think culturally is the value of college. If it's solely about like creating more financial and, and opportunities for prosperity and education and like social equities for folks, then in that sense, absolutely. It's less concerning that we have less men enrolled college because they need, they have tended to need less of that sort of support. But I guess as a developmental psychologist, someone who's really invested and has worked a lot in the education system and in the investment of education in our, in our young folks, one of the things that I think about often is that college isn't just about the degree and the courses and the grades and the academic work. It's also about all of the non-academic growth and development that happens among young people in this like relatively structuralized way, in ways that are, I think, difficult to recreate outside of that educational institution, right? It's probably the difference, and I don't know much about this difference, but the difference between the development of folks who are homeschooled versus kids who grow up in like the public public school system. People get all sorts of skills and developments, but I'm, I'm curious to ask the question about what skills and, and abilities are being developed in certain contexts versus others, and I think there are some in college related to sort of some of the issues that we were already talking about, like relational 
development, emotional development, not just the ability to digest and interpret like intellectual knowledge, but like the practice of incorporating that knowledge and the critical thinking skills that one needs to, to learn and grow. Anyway, that's kind of a big tangent, but I do think that that's an important question like that's adjacent to the conversation about like why that's the case in the first place. Yeah, like you're kind of getting at like, why do we care? Why, yeah. do we, why is that a question that matters? Yeah, for sure. So do you have a sense of what's feeding that disparity at the moment? I think it's a lot of different things. There are a lot of different theories about why that's the case. The Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago, right when I first started in this position, published an article about how about this disparity and that the reason for this disparity was because men, young men especially, feel very isolated um, and alienated within the college context. So that's one sort of factor that's been theorized to be contributing. And that relates to some of what we were talking about earlier, right? We didn't get too much into it, but wherein like the messaging and the way of engaging with young men in particular seems tone deaf to the actual lived experience of young men. So this Wall Street Journal article was highlighting the fact that there was a culture of hostility towards young men at college campuses and they were picking up on that and not wanting to or feeling um put off by that yeah at, at worst hostility at best just like neglect mm -hmm. do you think that some of that either perceived culture or some of the actual culture of neglect does that ring true for you i mean i feel a little apprehensive in answering that because well i mean the answer is is yes, I do think that that's the case. But that's also been the case in the same time period that we've importantly done a much better job of like engaging and including folks of minoritized identities and experiences, right? I, w I wanna be really careful in how we talk about like, well, we've neglected them and you know, woe are men, but like, you know, there's a lot of good reasons why we've allocated our focus and our attention elsewhere. It's become, I think, generally a matter of, you know, that, that saying the squeaky wheel gets the grease, wherein unless young men are creating problems, like actively creating disruptions or problems or harm towards others, we generally in institutions of higher ed don't deliberately attend to them which is especially concerning given how much of male suffering and like difficulty is socialized to happen silently. Mm. Wow, I love that you're talking about that. There are so many assumptions as well. And maybe some of those assumptions come from privilege. I think some people still just assume like, oh, men don't need help. Or yeah, or exactly. They assume like men aren't suffering. Or it's this kind of dismissive, oh, they'll get over it, or they'll be fine. Or, or yeah, because they're privileged. They don't need. Well, and this is, I mean, this interacts with so many different parts of like developmental science and stuff. This process of socialization that inspires and like creates some of these issues in the first place happens very young and is pervasive throughout our society. And so just the sentiment about like, you know, they'll get over it. They're fine. You know, is it from a very young age from like two, three, four years old? I mean, there's a bunch of evidence you look up on youtube videos of the disparity and how amazing well-meaning father or mother is like helping support their young child at the doctor while they're getting their immunizations or their shots the young girl is getting like oh it's okay we got you you know it's all right don't cry it's all right it's gonna hurt a lot of nurturing a lot of care 
And the young boy, what he gets is, you know, come on, suck it. You're a man. Come on. You're a man, buddy. This three, four-year-old kid who's in pain. You got it. Come on. No crying. You got it. Big boy. Who's a big boy? And that same kind of treatment persists and pervades across all different levels and facets of our society, including institutions of higher education. Whereas the reality is that our young men are suffering significantly with all issues of stress with school and like and achievement stuff. Again, that's like their relationship to success or failure is like rooted in some really deep early socialization or things related to like relationships and like how to be in a healthy relationship and to communicate about their needs and wants and limitations that they, they don't know and haven't learned how to do. Or, you know, even just being with and navigating their own internal experience and all the difficult emotions that culturally they've not had the practice of doing in a way that like is healthy or generative. Obviously, like we're trying at the University of Oregon through the MRC, like we're trying and with a bunch of colleagues that are understanding the gravity of these situations, of these experiences, we're, we're trying to do good work. But broadly speaking, a lot of this kind of suffering has gone completely unnoticed and neglected at institutions of higher ed. Yeah. And one of the things I'm really hearing, one of the things I want to highlight from what you're saying, I hear this refrain. There are so many approaches that are reinforcing isolation with men. It's like in childhood, the isolation of having to deal with suffering yourself and then getting older and having to deal with the isolation of feeling like some of these institutions are indifferent to your suffering, the isolation of silence, being expected to suck it up and deal with it. I see this broader narrative as well, which is playing out in American culture in particular, but to a certain extent in a lot of places in the world where there are political forces that have a vested interest as well in making men feel isolated and really in making everyone feel isolated. You know, um, when people are drumming up racial tensions, drumming up gender tensions, all this kind of stuff, um, political tensions kind of movement towards isolation for political gain. And so it starts to paint this picture of men feeling isolated at every layer of their experience, or almost like at every layer of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, men are feeling isolated. In my mind, it's not so hard to connect the dots between a man who feels really isolated and alienated and a man who starts behaving in antisocial ways. So I really... I appreciate that that's a piece of this conversation that they are highlighting. I want to highlight it. We had talked in a previous conversation about political slants. There's this notion that college campuses tend to be more liberal, right? And there's this idea of what that means, like what comes along with being liberal. Can you talk to that aspect of it a little bit and how that touches in with men and, and where men tend to be and where men tend to end up? You spoke to sort of the political forces at play. So, I mean, this is beyond my scope of practice to like even understand or engage in. But um, I do think that one of the things that's happening, uh, that's happened and continues to happen is that institutions of higher education have been cast as these like liberalized political machines through which men are being actively marginalized. And that the experiences of men and the strengths of men, the merits of men and manhood are being erased or cast in a negative light. I mean, it goes back to the conversation we were having about toxic masculinity, that men are evil and men are bad. So yeah, I think that's another sort of 
factor that's contributing. Uh, and even among a lot of the men that I work with, uh, there's, there's often sort of a, um, I mean, I, I might refer to it as a, a trauma response, wherein, you know, they felt or have been vigilant against like attacks towards them for reasons none other than their gender identity. Again, there's a whole conversation about like responsibility and the ways in which like that same individual might be perpetrating and like enacting out some of the behaviors that we're concerned about. And the lived experience of a lot of men in college is that they are being targeted for reasons at times, uh, for reasons none other than their gender identity. And based on my experience, they're not wrong. It definitely happens even even among some of, you know, my colleagues there are times where this implicit bias against men, sort of writ large, exposes itself uh, in ways that our students, I think, can, can feel. Perhaps neither of us is well-equipped to really jump into it, but I just want to voice my curiosity about this conversation about men who might be more conservative, growing up in parts of the country that might slant more conservative and those men feeling alienated or feeling like higher education institutions are definitely not made for them. I don't know if there's, if there's anything, you know, insights that you have into that or just stuff that you would like to add about that. Yeah, I mean, one thing that it makes me think of is, is I get, um, as a function of my role at the university, there are folks who reach out to me from other institutions um, and other organizations who are interested in doing, quote-unquote, men's work, who are reaching out to solicit information, insight, to get ideas about how to do that work, and notably often cite their surprise that this, what we're doing, the Men's Resource Center, is happening in a state that's otherwise like really liberal, which I always find really interesting. It's sort of speaking already to this bias or this perspective that you're describing, wherein like there seems to be some sort of tension between a, a liberal sort of state and the effort and the intention to help support our young men. I think maybe another example that I, I would bring up that sort of speaks to this perspective that you're describing. I do a lot of work outside of my full-time appointment at the university. And one of those sort of threads of work are with fraternities on a national level who are very interested and invested actually specifically around like violence prevention work and creating fraternity cultures that are much more proactive about creating safe communities at their chapters. And one of the themes of the conversations that comes up often is a really strong uh, resistance to and a vigilance against politicizing this work that we're doing there's, let's just call it a sensitivity to the work of supporting healthy men and, and healthy communities among men as that being somehow consistent with some, some, some agenda, some political agenda. I appreciate hearing that. And I think it's just one of the many ways in which the reality doesn't reflect the stereotype. One
one thing I, I would like to talk about and articulate that I don't think we've done as much of is just how ready our young men are to seize these opportunities for growth and development. I have countless stories in these workshops and these interactions that I have with young men that to me speak to how the work that we have yet to do in preventing violence or creating healthier communities, it's not because of an active aversion or avoidance from our men. A lot of our young guys would love nothing more than to be cast as things other than villains, right? Like what person doesn't want to be in the good graces of the people with whom he's in community? Given the space in which they can, you know, be vulnerable and be open and, and admit to sort of the ways in which they don't know, haven't learned the skills and abilities, a lot of our guys are ready to step up. I would love to hear one or a couple stories, uh, if there are any that are jumping out to you at the moment. It was actually one of the first, maybe like the third or fourth week that I was in my position. I had set up the space really nicely and, you know, we were still during summer break, so, so there wasn't much going on in the student union. But there were some orientation sessions happening. And so occasionally there'd be some students wandering around. And even more occasionally, some of them would find their way to the top floor of the student union in the corner where we are. And I saw this group of guys walking by and very excitedly waved them in. And they, they asked what we did. I blacked out for a couple minutes. I don't know exactly what I what I said to them. But when I when I came to, I noticed that one of the three guys had this really like quizzical look on his face and seemed to be like grappling with something. And so I asked him, I was like, there's something on your mind? Like, was there something that resonated with you? And this freshman, this incoming freshman, um, an 18 year old, actually what he did first is he stopped and he looked over to these two guys that he was with, which I'm assuming were like new roommates or like people that he had just met just from the way that they were interacting. And he looked to them, he said, how do you put it? I'm gonna be a little personal just like warning them. And he looked back at me and he said, yeah, I'm just, I was just noticing uh, as you were talking that I'm, I feel like I myself, I'm in a relationship right now with my girlfriend. And I've been noticing that there are ways in which I'm not able to like feel or express my emotions as well as I would, I would like to. And I feel really underdeveloped. I mean, he probably didn't use these developmental scientist words, but like, I feel, I feel behind in those ways. Uh, and so a lot of what you're talking about really is like, feels curious to me. 18 years old, brand new in college. When what I said to him, I mean, I was like, first of all, you're so much further than I was at 18 to even have enough awareness to be able to introspect about that, let alone like, and to express it, you're doing great. And one of his buddies, sort of as he was talking, gave sort of a nervous, uncomfortable laugh, just because he himself wasn't sort of familiar with that kind of thing. But then, you know, here's this guy being really clear and vulnerable about like what his what he's noticing in his own development and like what his aspirations are, and is simultaneously like modeling for these other two guys that he's just met that that's okay to do, uh, and that's an important or valuable thing to do. Yeah, it was just a really right off the bat. Uh, a really heartening uh, and exciting uh, experience as we as we continue to move into this work. I mean, maybe I'll share just one other example from more of the violence prevention type of work that we do as well. You know, I do these violence prevention workshops where we talk a lot about, and in the spirit of, I think, what we've been talking about a lot, it's less about like, I mean, we'd certainly talk about 
how not to cause harm, but we really focus a lot on what it means to be in healthy relationships. So things around like healthy boundaries and healthy communication and identifying and, and, and honoring like inequities and like in respect and power, these kinds of things. You know, one of the things that comes up and, and that's a huge part of what we do is to leverage this propensity already in like groups of guys and especially groups of guys that already have an established sort of community, the effect of groupthink and social norms, right? And so a lot of times when people think of groups of guys, they think about sort of the, the group thing and those norms as being really harmful and destructive, um, which is not not true, like that that is and has been and, and is sometimes the case. And there's a lot of like wisdom and and really positive beliefs and attitudes that are also embedded in those groups if given the space to express themselves. Uh, and so one example of that, there's a violence prevention workshop that we do where at the end we, we go through a couple of scenarios um, and we invite the guys to like share about how they would feel in these scenarios and then also to share a bit about like how they would respond or how they would like counsel a friend to respond who's in this in this situation. One of these scenarios is about, you know, you and your partner are on a break and during the break, uh, your partner has gone and slept with someone else. And so it's meant to inspire conversations about, well, just first of all, like before we jump to what you would do, how you would feel and to like help the guys connect with their experience and their emotion. And also to like be curious about conditions around like communication and what were the expectations or the agreements. Anyway, one of the, uh, you know, when we got to the what would you do part, one of the guys just blurts out, well, this is why I keep those videos on my phone. Sort of implying that his response to this feeling of being cheated on was to re resort to a revenge porn. You could feel the air come out of the room. And this fella who had sort of blurted this out, noticing how so many of his guys in his community found that to not be sort of the great idea that he thought it was in the moment and giving him a lot of like concerned looks, surprise, concerned looks. I didn't say anything. I just let it ride and sort of let this experience of realization, some embarrassment and shame probably, some might refer to as like healthy shame, come over this fellow who, by the way, so much gratitude to him for whatever combination of hastiness or vulnerability or courage it took to just say what was on his mind, credit to the space also that we created. But yeah, the awareness and the realization that was he was all of a sudden enveloped in by his peers' disapproval of this kind of like belief and response. And importantly, not just for him. You, know, you look around the room and notice who maybe would have had the same answer. Yeah, it's super powerful. And uh, yeah, so thank you for giving me the opportunity. Just a couple of examples. But really, I think there's, there's a lot of evidence for how given the opportunity and creating conditions within which guys can like practice that kind of like openness and vulnerability that a lot of this work of preventing and eliminating harm can really develop. Yeah, thank you for sharing those stories. That's awesome. We, we often think of like the peer pressure of men, especially in like a fraternal setting, right? Pressuring other men into doing problematic things and doesn't get as much airtime when all the dudes are like, Bro, that's not cool. <laughs> yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it also reminds me to, you know, a conversation that comes up, you had alluded to earlier that the conversation about the difference between the sexes. 
Um, you look at it from a from an endocrinolo- endocrinological sort of perspective, and oftentimes people associate testosterone or higher levels of testosterone with higher levels of violence. And this isn't sort of my area of expertise, so I want to uh, uh, qualify this um, by saying that. But really, the association between testosterone levels, higher testosterone levels, are really associated with higher status-seeking behavior. And so that can be and has been expressed in the forms of dominance and power, uh, insofar as those have been correlated, that status-seeking, that, that to be higher status has um, necessitated to like dominate and like be more powerful over your peers. But it's shown, uh, really it's shown that like status status can also be achieved in a lot of different ways, depending on what the norms of the community are and what it is that's valued in the community. And so to, to, to your point about like, you know, the, the effects of peer pressure, if the values of the, the organization or the group, if the way to achieve status is to be a good guy, then that becomes as compelling a force for like motivating behavior and like mobilizing testosterone as, you know, any other set of values. I love that. I love that perspective. I think the conversation around hormones is is often not approached with enough nuance. And so I really appreciate you bringing that. Well, I feel like we've covered good ground here today. I really appreciate you coming to the studio. Arian, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Your intersectional insights are really profound and, and needed. So thank you. Well, thank you also very much. It's been, uh, yeah, obviously I think it, it's probably apparent, but these are, this is a conversation that I care a lot about. And so I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Awesome. Do you want people to find you online? Sure. Yeah. Cool. Uh, on Instagram at, at Arian Mobasser, uh, if you can figure out how to spell that, but there's not too many Arians out there. I'll put it in the show notes. As thank well. you. And yeah. you can also, if you're interested in, uh, the MRC in particular at the University of Art, Oregon and learning more about what we're doing at uo.mrc uh, on Instagram as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you also. Awesome.